It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. Yes, there was a big, 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 big Microsoft Second Tuesday patch. He'll tell us all about it. Also, a new version of Flash. That and your questions and Steve's answers coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 365, recorded August 15th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 149. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today at GoToAssist.com. Use the promo code SECURITY. And by Ford. Ford invites us tech geeks to join the conversation, submit ideas, and grab your tech geek badge at social.ford.com. It's time for security now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> After that wind up, I have to ask you, are you recording this, Leo? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. Let me put it this way. If, if, if you're hearing this, folks, I must have recorded it. And if you're not hearing it, I didn't. But then you Great. wouldn't know. That's a conundrum wrapped in a riddle. We deal with these sorts of things every week here. <laughs> Steve Gibson's here. He's the explainer-in-chief, the guy in charge of security and privacy on the Twit Network. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting because this is easily the nerdiest, geekiest, the hardest core show on the network by far. Um, and one of the most popular shows. And it continue, the numbers uh, continue to go up. And I and I just have to think it. It's a real demonstration that people want hardcore tech. They like the information. Yeah. So today we are going to do the Q and A that we deferred yeah uh, last week because of Matt Honan's. So now we're once again mod one. <laughs> well, we're at episode three hundred and sixty-five. If you started Elaine. listening now, one show a day, you'd finish next August. Same time next year. Yep. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we have our Q&A this week and a little bit of security news, not too much. Some interesting questions. The uh, The topic of last week uh, generated a lot of interest, the whole issue of authentication. And I started to put together some commentary because I realized there had been sort of a critical mass built up in me. Um, and I was thinking I would do it this week, but I'm going to defer it. Out next week to give it the treatment that I want to. So some commentary about the issue of authentication, the problems that we have, and and the next step we have to take. We've we've trained we've trained users now about passwords. Do not use monkey as your password. Um, as I and, did, by the way, for a long time. <laughs> it's surprisingly popular. I think it's number six really? for some reason. Wow. Yeah, it's bizarre uh, why, like, you know, random people would all choose monkey for some reason. But, you know, don't use monkey. 
and uh, and don't use password and try to use different passwords on different sites. You know, those lessons, they're sort of sifting out into the ether of understanding. And I think it's time to take the next step. And I'm going to talk about what that is next week. Not as not as the topic. That is that's not worthy of a topic, but to deliver uh, a little bit of a commentary. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, we'll do Q&A this week. Well, that sounds great. I've got some good questions which you have come up with uh, from our audience. But before we do that, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about one of our great sponsors, the folks at Citrix, who love security now. They love security. They're very good at it. And they also love IT professionals. They know you're good at what you do. And that's why they've created a tool that is so useful for IT professionals, the most used remote support product in the world. And now it just got a little bit better. In fact, I just saw Russell uh, Tammany. Our uh, IT guy just sent us a note. He's been using another, I think it's $800 a month product to do Ooh. essentially what GoToAssist does. And uh, we got him a sample uh, of the new GoToAssist monitoring. <laughs> it's it's lots less expensive. And he says it's better. And so he's got a, he's made a list of the features that he says, I need to have these duplicated. And he's sending them off. The GoToAssist people said, yeah, we'd love to work with Russell to improve the product. And that's what I love about Citrix. They're, you, 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 it's a subscription, a monthly subscription, but the pro- product just gets better and better and better. So this is a perfect example. The best live or unattended support anywhere. And now they've added this go-to-assist monitoring, which is just exactly what people like Russell need. Russell is a contract IT guy. He does something called managed support services. And now, the, the course, the key on man, being a successful managed support service guy, and he's got a three-man shop, is efficiency. You have to be able to make sure you can fix problems fast, that you are proactive, that you see problems and solve them before they become little problems, before they become big problems. And that's where monitoring is so critical. He says uh, GoToAssist is exactly the tool that he has wanted to use for some time. So here's the deal. I'll show you the I'll show you the new thing, the monitoring. They just acquired this uh, uh, about six months ago. They showed us, and I was so excited, and I'm glad they could finally uh, talk about it. So what happens is you will install. So he comes over here, and he did this already on our network. He's using it on our network. He installed the GoToAssist crawler. That detects not only all the hardware on the entire network, all the network-attached devices on the network, but also all the software. This thing's really sophisticated. So you've got now this great, uh, you know, kind of asset inventory. And then you set up monitoring dashboards. You can They have some stock ones, but you can customize them as well to show things like server and network performance, CPU load, disk utilization, even things like, you know, how's the toner cartridge? And you get alerts from all of this by text message, instant message, email. So you could set a threshold. You could say, hey, when the toner cartridge gets to 90%, you know, 5% left, I want a message so I can fix it. And this is what makes Russell so good. We never have any problems. Of course we have problems, but we never know about it because he fixes them before they become big problems. It really is the key. So I mentioned he's a three-man shop. He uses go to assist. And has 855 individual businesses he services and supports with three people. That's what we're talking about. If you want to get in the business of managed support services, if you're a managed service provider, if you're an IT or a help desk, if you're a support center, this is awesome. Remote access so you could fix the problem. 
They've got the monitoring so you know about the problem before it becomes a big one. I want you to try it free right now. Visit gotoassist.com, click the Try It Free button, and uh, all you have to do is use the promo code SECURITY. Steve will get credit for it, S-C-C-U-R-I-T-Y, SECURITY. There we go. And uh, you can try this free for 30 days. You can do either the remote support module or the monitoring module, but I would suggest you do both so you can really see everything GoToAssist can do for you. GoToAssist.com. Use the promo code SECURITY. Leo Laporte here, Steve Gibson there. We are ready, Steve, to get the latest tech news before our Q&A. What's going on out there? Well, the big news is uh, rather routine, unfortunately, which is we are on Wednesday after the second Tuesday of the month, which is always the day after Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. Um, these are rather important this month. They're a little frightening. We've got nine sets of patches more than half of them have critical ratings. Um, they address at least 27 security holes in Windows and related software. And some of them look kind of frightening. Uh, there's, one there's one set of four privately reported vulnerabilities that affect IE, all versions 6 through 9. And that's a remote code execution problem. And Microsoft writes that the most severe vulnerabilities could allow remote code execution if a user views a specially crafted web page using IE. Then they go on to explain that an attacker would have no way of forcing you to go to a website, blah, 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 you know, as their CYA, because we, we now know that that's not the way these things work. You know, people send you links in email, um, uh, high reputation Websites get compromised with uh, exploits installed on them, unbeknownst to their webmasters. So, so anyway, this is you know. So that's one. There's IE uh, all versions. Remote desktop has a problem where if you have the remote desktop exposed to the internet, it's possible to send it some packets to execute code remotely on your machine. Windows print spoolers got four privately reported vulnerabilities, which they fix. And something we don't often see, the Windows common controls. That's the, the library of like all the, all the components that make up a window, drop-down list boxes, the, the, the tree list, the text box, the you know, buttons and things. To have a, to have a uh, remote code execution vulnerability there is uncommon and very worrisome. And they say of that the same thing. The vulnerability could allow remote code execution if a visitor, if a user visits a website containing specially crafted content designed to exploit the vulnerability. Um, there's a problem with uh, their JScript, which is their version of JavaScript and their VBScript that affects 64-bit versions of Windows, which are generally regarded as more secure than the, the older 32-bit um, instances, and even something, uh, a remote code execution problem with Exchange Server. So this will require a restart, but it's not something I would put off for very long because many of these are publicly, um, I'm sorry, are privately recorded, but several are public, and um, uh, this is not something you want to leave your system exposed to. There's too much opportunity for exploit. And Adobe uh, just yesterday, on August 14th, uh, also Tuesday, they released 
news of a critical Flash Player update across uh, all platforms, Windows, Mac, and Unix. I'm sorry, Linux, Unix. Um, And what's odd is I'm not seeing any push from them for this. I did. I got a new Flash yesterday. But it was on a Mac, yeah. Okay, um, I've restarted IE. I've clicked on, you know, check my version. I I also fired up Google specifically to see whether it was going to, you know, update me on its own. Um, and and at least on the Windows platform, I'm not seeing it yet. Maybe you have to go it, to a site that uses Flash. I bet you that's it. I've tried that too. Didn't do um, it. Huh? And, hmm. and like clicked on the player or like had the browser see that I'm lo- I'm I'm instancing the player. That what I have currently is the most recent vulnerable one, 11.3.300.270, and all earlier players are subject to this vulnerability. What's The reason I'm bringing this up is it is being exploited actively in the wild through targeted attacks. In this instance, at the moment, uh, it's a malicious Microsoft Word doc which exploits the ActiveX version of Flash Player. Oh, it's IE um, I, in my own notes here. And I, I tried Firefox and I tried uh, uh, Chrome, but I didn't fire up IE and, uh, and use Flash. So it may only be uh, a problem with IE. But uh, you want to update to the latest one, which is .271 rather than .270. So um, and that is being actively exploited. So you can go to adobe.com slash software slash flash slash about and that will run a little animation and show you what your current version is. So you can quickly see whether you are yet at 11.3.300.271, which is where you want to be. And. Uh, I noticed something that I thought some of our listeners would find interesting. Uh, we've talked about the Khan Academy and what a what a nice piece of work all of the resources there are. They're just in the process of launching a new computer science site, which focuses on the what they said was the critical early adolescent years where children broaden or unfortunately in some cases narrow their interests. More more often narrow, yeah. Yes, uh, and their identity before high school. Um, What I thought was interesting about this, TechCrunch carried the story, um, and they said the lessons don't get much more complicated than basic algebra and how these intuitive mathematical concepts can create powerful artistic video game and website experiences. What they've done is they've, and this is not the first time this has been done, but I think it's it's nice to see it again. They're merging computer science education with graphics, so they're using they're, they're using sort of the the compelling visuals of graphics in order to teach concepts of computer science. Um, and of course, you'll remember the logo programming language with its so-called turtle graphics which was an early effort in the mid to late 60s to, to bring, you know, to interest um, young people in computers by, by making something accessible. By, yeah, it's you know, very by, cool. Yeah. Yeah, by, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's it, I was thinking of it because it also relates to the page I just did, which, you know, where I had those, the, 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 
the way uh, magnetic data storage functions shown graphically and 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 you and others immediately jumped into it wanting to see how I did the things that I did. So there's definitely a a, a connection between something as visual as a graphic presentation and the code behind it that makes it go. And, you know, I mean, in this day and age now with video games being so phenomenal, um, you know, we understand that there's a lot of code behind there uh, to make it all happen. So uh, anyway, the Khan Academy launching a, a computer science curriculum that is based on graphics and in the little in the little on-screen sample that I saw it looked like some simple javascript that was that was a- actually they showed um implementing a version of pacman and showed the code to do it where they they were like you you could see the way they were actually uh, creating the graphics to draw the little ghosts that were uh, going around the maze um so I thought that was cool. Um, and from the Twitterverse, I had one tweet that caught my attention, which was, and this relates a little bit to one of the questions that we'll be encountering in a minute. Um, someone named Paul Morgan uh, tweeted, he said, uh, just listen to Matt's story. Those kids are in a bad situation if caught. There is no pressing charges when it's a felony, which... I thought was a good point. Remember that Matt said that you know he agreed with the hacker not to press charges, but you know this was serious stuff that these kids were up to, uh, which we will discuss in one of our upcoming questions today. So I thought that was that was worth noting, and I did have a really well written and really neat note from uh, uh, Joe Kozak. Uh, August 8th, so just recently, who his, the, the subject was another satisfied customer. Thank you. He said, Dear Steve, I have an older HP computer with a partitioned 80 gig hard drive, C colon for me and D colon for HP programs if they needed to be reinstalled. For several months, I was getting warnings from my hard drive. It would make clicking sounds. I foolishly ignored them and failed to back up the drive. Then one day, the computer would not boot. It would get to the Windows screen, go no further, then reboot. This loop continued. I shut it down and tried again, dot, 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 many times, but with no success. I always got the same result. I thought, no big deal. I would remove the hard drive, use a USB cable, and read the drive from my other computer back it up there. No such luck. My other computer didn't even know it was attached. Sure, it saw the D partition, which I didn't need, but it did not see the C drive. That just And he says, this is when I started to panic. I started to research my situation and learned about Spinrite. I watched the videos and read many, many, many positive testimonials. I must admit Even after watching the videos and reading the testimonials, I was still skeptical, but decided to purchase Spinrite anyway due to the 30-day absolute satisfaction guarantee, which, of course, we honor. Anybody who is sorry 
they purchased it, who regrets their purchase, we're happy to put the money back on their credit card. So he says, after running Spinrite for a straight 23 hours, it seemed like nothing was happening. It remained on one sector for over 13 hours. Wow. So, <laughs> so I emailed tech support to ask if that was normal. They informed me, they meaning Greg, informed me it wasn't normal, but it was possible. So I let Spinrite continue working. After an additional five hours, now we're at 28, I wanted to give my PC a rest. So I again emailed tech support, this time to ask how I could stop Spinrite without losing its location. Again, tech support quickly replied with detailed instructions, and I stopped Spinrite. At that time, I was curious to see what would happen if I turned on my computer without booting Spinrite. This time, it did not loop as before. I could tell the computer wanted to boot, so I let it continue trying. After about 10 minutes, it booted and my desktop appeared. It was like magic. I absolutely could not believe my eyes. Without shutting it down, I spent the next five hours backing everything up. The next day, I ran another long session, 20 hours of Spinrite, from the place it left off the first time to recover additional data from the remaining sectors. Throughout the next few days, I ran several more sessions. At the end, it ran for over 113 hours, spread out over eight sessions. Additional files were located and backed up as it went. My final analysis is that it recovered 99.999% or more. I noticed only a few files in one folder which were not recovered. Conclusion, low cost, 30-day absolute satisfaction guarantee, excellent technical support. Purchasing Spinrite should be a no-brainer. Be patient and let it do its magic. It's the best software investment I've ever made. Thank you, Steve, for this great program. Best regards, Joe Kozak. Hey. So, very nice story. I haven't shared a, an adventure like that with our listeners for some time. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, that'll be fun. We're got, I've got questions for you, Steve. Lots Whoa. of them. We're going to get to them in just a second. <laughs> Before we do, let's mention our good friends at the, and I mean it when I say good friends, at the Ford Motor Company. I'm kind of proud of my uh, association with Ford. It started when I bought a Mustang which I fell in love with, my 2010 GT 5.0 with a Ford Sync, and oh, it's sweet. It's a beautiful ride, and I still love it. I still, every day, just go, gosh, I love driving this. But now I got my eyes <laughs> on the new electrics from Ford. The 2012 Ford Focus Electric is out. Uh, next year, the 2013 plug-in hybrid. I think that's probably the one I'm going to get. The Ford Fusion Energy will be out. Both of them will take advantage of this is Ford's idea about cars, by the way. Uh, the The idea that they are a platform, that they are you can't possibly on a on a durable good like a car keep up with the technology. So what do you do? You put sensors in, you put an API in, and then you encourage people to develop for the platform. And that's exactly what Ford is doing with Ford AppLink, which integrates with the Ford Sync, and now. In the 2012 Ford Focus, they've even got a kind of a reference app they call the My Ford Mobile app. Works on your smartphone, Apple, Android, 
even BlackBerry. And it does it just shows you all the cool things you could do. For instance, uh, it knows where the car is at all times. So if you lose your car, by the way, the app will tell you where it is. But it also tells you where the nearest charging stations are. If you're at home in the living room, cars in the garage, you could tell the phone, hey, Will you do me a favor? Charge, but only during the lowest electrical rates. And the phone actually downloads from the utilities the electrical rates, figures it out, and and then programs the car to charge at the right time. It'll also, you can even set it up to, for with go times. Say, you know, on uh, Monday through Friday, I leave for work at 8.30. The car will be exactly the temperature you say. It'll be ready to go. It'll be all charged up. I just think this is so cool. This is... This is, and it's just an example. It's a reference uh, implementation of what they plan to do. They do have a website, too, the MyFord Mobile website, that, you know, they've got leaderboards and stuff to, for who's saved the most CO2, uh, t- you know, today, who's uh, saved the most money by driving their electric vehicle, things like that. This is, this is really cool. This is a forward-looking car company. You know, I, I was interviewing the CTO the other day, and I said, wow, you guys must be almost 100 years old. It's so cool to see, you know, a 100-year-old car. He said, we're more than 100 years old. Are you kidding? We celebrated our centennial like 10 years ago. This is a company that's been in the forefront of uh, the Industrial Revolution in the United States and is now in the forefront, I think, of the informatics revolution of technology. And it's so cool to see that happen. Really smart guys and gals doing uh, a great job and and staying true to the to Henry Ford's vision which was to make automobiles affordable accessible to all to make uh, the world mobile and uh, that's what they're doing I want you to uh, here's the deal I want you to go to your Ford dealer and uh, it's got to be an EV certified dealer if you want to test the uh, Ford Focus electric and bring your smartphone so you can also test drive not just the Ford Focus but test drive the my Ford mobile app very, very cool. Oh, I forgot to tell you, they now have a new social forum. This is, an, again, I just, they're really doing the, 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 the whole thing. This is Ford Social, social.ford.com. I actually have a little article you could read uh, posted on here if you're, uh, if you're interested. I, um, I interviewed um, their chief technologist, uh, Jim Buchkowski, uh, about what they're doing in terms of technologies. And I think that article is on here. Let me just uh, go through. There's some really uh, interesting stuff in terms of... Uh, I was interested in autonomous vehicles, and uh, we talked a little bit about that. It's all here at... Yeah, because uh, uh, yeah, I think that's where they're headed. And he said, you know, basically this is what they said. Look, you, even in an in a autonomous airplane, you know, these, these uh, airplanes not going to land themselves, you always have a pilot. What we really believe the future is, and this comes from Alan Mulally, the CEO's uh, experience. He designed the 777 cockpit. Um, he, uh, he said that uh, it's assist. It's about giving you more information so you're a better driver. It's about assisting you in being a better driver. So the article is here. You can read that. Uh, there, there's some cool places where you could put your ideas. Look at this Your Ideas section. Um, one of the ideas, uh, Wi-Fi music sharing between cars, like that. <laughs> automatic sunscreens, right? So you don't have to flip the visor down. It just does it, right? Cars should do that. A wind turbine under the hood to charge a lithium battery? That sounds like uh, perpetual motion. This is all new stuff at social.ford.com. Submit your ideas to Ford. Like your favorite ideas. And don't forget to get your Tech Geek badge. You're doing badges now uh, when you uh, read my post uh, about my interview with Jim Buchkowski. It's all at social. Ford.com. I just love it when a company embraces 
uh, technology that way. Because, you know, we embrace technology. All right. I got questions. You ready, Steve? You got answers? Speaking of technology. Speaking yeah. of technology. This is question number one. Seth Jameson, Fort Collins, Colorado. He was reading uh, that. Remember we talked about that animation that Steve did a little while back, and uh, he said the JavaScript view source. You'll see the JavaScript. Steve, thanks for sharing the code you used to produce the amazing magnetic storage animation, which you'll be using in a, a video and a forthcoming spin, right? I've been studying it, and I learned some neat tricks, but I have a question. The scalable vector graphics or SVG drawing system predates HTML5 and the Canvas API. Did you think about using SVG instead? And if, if not, why not? Um, well, okay. Uh, I chose two questions out of many. I was really surprised and, and I thought it was neat that our listeners were as interested in what was going on yeah. behind, un, under the hood, behind the scenes, much as you were, Leo, oh, yeah. um, with that little demo. Um, so I thought I would just take a second to talk about it a little bit since this is a, a forum for doing that. Um, the scalable vector graphics... Uh, has been around longer than the Canvas API. Apple actually originated the Canvas API, um, and it then became a standard much later than scalable vector graphics. The, the SVG, scalable vector graphics, objects are, are themselves objects in the sense of, for example, if you have a rectangle and a circle, for example, they... They exist as things in what's called the DOM, the document, uh, the document object uh, model of the of the page. So, in the same way that in an HTML page, you've got uh, divisions and tables and images and 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 so forth that are part of that that document structure. The 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 drawing objects, the scalable vector graphics, are sort of of the same class, the same level. So what that means is that the a, a circle, for example, will have a defined center and a radius and then things like color and outline color and, and, and outline thickness, you know, properties of that circle. And if you were to want to animate that, you could you could change any of those properties and the browser would show you the new circle. So the the circle exists as something sort of as, as something, um, you know, virtual, physical, actual as part of the document. By comparison, the Canvas API is just drawing. So so you have uh, primitives like move to, line to, arc to. Exactly. Drawing primitives. Stroke, exactly. which will do the drawing itself. It, uh, and, and the way to think of it is as a bitmap. You define a so-called canvas, which is a drawing surface, and then the, the order in which you draw uh, affects the pixels of... The, you know the the of this bitmap 
um, as you draw across it. So you, you can set a line width and say that it's going to be this color. And then you say, move to this coordinate and then draw a line to that coordinate and bang, it exists. But there's no notion that the line itself doesn't exist as an object. So, for example, you couldn't change one of the coordinates and have the line move. You'd have to erase the whole canvas and then redraw everything. Is it, this this is not SVG. This is with yeah the the canvas the API. canvas the HTML five API. Yeah. So so for what I was wanting to do, the the kind of graphics that I was envisioning didn't feel to me like they would fit into sort of an objectish template. For example, we were talking earlier about about the the Pac-Man, the idea of recreating Pac-Man. That's a perfect example of where you might use the scalable vector graphics because you might define the shape of one of those little ghosts and then moving it around the maze is just a matter of changing its location and and the browser will update the entire presentation showing these things in a new position. That's something called Whereas, sprites than uh, typically done in video games. Precisely. Yeah. Um, and so as opposed to what I'm doing, which is more sort of freeform graphics that don't really fit into, into that same that, 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 that same object-oriented uh, uh, way of des- describing things. You, arguably, you could do either with the other, but, but some things just sort of make more sense in one form than another. So, and, and also, it feels to me like scalable vector graphics is sort of a transient. I mean, it was here first. But I think HTML5 is the future, absolutely. Yes, that's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And so I was wanting also to invest, since it was going to take me a while to learn either of them, um, since I could probably do anything on the canvas that I could do in scalable, scalable vector graphics. I thought, well, I'm going to do the one that, that is part of the W3C standard and, and moving forward. This is also kind of intuitive if you've ever you, you know done any uh, graphics. I'm looking at the amplifier, the code to draw the amplifier, which is just basically a simple box. Yeah. And you set some parameters. C is your canvas. You set the color, the fill style, the shadow blur. Uh, and then you say what the stroke style is. Then you uh, style equals hex 000000. Then you say what the line width is. C.linewidth equals 2. And then you draw yeah. it. C.stroke rect. And you give it the four coordinates, the four corners. And it's done. Yeah. I, you know, we were talking about the Khan Academy earlier. And it, it, if somebody wanted to play with JavaScript, um, it is that easy. I mean, it's it, pretty straightforward. I, I, think, I, have to I, say, I yeah. think graphics, yes. I think graphics is a, is a really, it is a, is a tangible, immediate feedback, you know, kind of like, oh, look, I just drew something. And yeah. then you start. You, th- then you start asking yourself questions. I mean, this is a little bit like the the portable dog killer uh, moral, which you know I ended that story with saying, "Look, just do something. Just start, and Im- you'll immediately get sucked in to to thinking. Oh, you know, hey, I've got an idea. How do I do this? Or what about if I do that? 
And before you know it, you know, <laughs> it'll be 4 a.m. And you'll realize you really should have gone to sleep. And that's the fun of programming, kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> A lot of sleepless. So let me ask. So there's animation. And by the way, you could see this at grc.com slash animation.htm. You could see this. Uh, are you erasing, for instance, uh, the read amplifier puts a plus and minus up uh, whenever it reads uh, a bit. Uh, are you erasing those pluses and minuses and redrawing them? How do you do that? Well, that's a very good question because there are, since it is just a bitmap, if, if, if I wanted to change the whole canvas, it would make more sense to erase it all and then repaint it all anew. Right. But because this is a bitmap, I can just erase the part that I'm changing. And so, for example, in the plus and minus case, that's what I'm doing. I'm, there are only little areas that are changing. And so so I go in and just blank those out and then change the plus to a minus and so forth. So, so you do erase, um, then redraw. Yes. And actually, you're doing yeah, a really I, I, cool thing with the plus and minus. They're growing and shrinking. <laughs> so you're really yeah. having fun with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is again. It's it's a nice way of playing with a simple programming language like JavaScript and immediately getting feedback, immediately getting some traction for for what you do. But do, you know, do keep an eye on the clock because otherwise, <laughs> the, the sun will come up. This is pretty cool. You can uh, if you go there and view source, and most browsers will let you do that. Actually, I'm looking at it in Safari, which has you open up the developer menu, then you actually have a really great interface to the uh, JavaScript. But it's only about 800 lines of code, very clearly commented, uh, really easy to uh, understand. And if you if you just go back and forth looking at the animation and looking at the code, I think this is a little lesson in itself. I think you can probably understand exactly what he's doing. It's it's all fairly straightforward. It's neat. Well, it is it is part of this video that I'm putting together. I've I've finished all of the work. There's actually a bunch more stuff I haven't made public just because I haven't had any reason to. Um, but I will. Uh, I'll let our listeners know as soon as I have the the video put together because I've done. I also showed the design, the the morphing of the the longitudinal recording head into vertical recording, and how that increases the density. But what the consequences are to recording much higher bit density because then those pulses begin interfering with each other. They get ah. very close together and they start pulling towards each other, which has some unexpected uh, side effects, which is, is part of what Spin, SpinWrite knows about. Is this all integer math or uh, is it floating point? Uh, in JavaScript, it's, it's sort of typeless, meaning that JavaScript tries to keep everything floating with a lot of resolution. Right. Um, if you do if you do any logical sort of bit manipulation, then JavaScript says, ooh, he's trying to and some bits or wow, more so some bits. Smart. Hmm. And so, yeah, so it'll it'll switch it into integers and allow you to do the right thing. So they've, they've really done a nice job. It, uh, it, I'm impressed. As I, as I have spent more time with it, I've, I've come away feeling that, wow, you know, here's a language which 
looks like it's got a future. Uh, if only they hadn't called it ECMAScript. Uh, <laughs> well, everybody calls it JavaScript. <laughs> we, we can ignore the fact that it it's really ECMAScript. Um, yeah. yeah, and I got I went out and got the uh, four O'Reilly books, uh, and uh, learning JavaScript is. If you've ever used the O'Reilly Learning series, you know that they're aimed at kind of programmers, so they're they're brusque. But uh, yep. there are also some good. There's eloquent JavaScript, which is nice for a first time programmer. Um, there's some good choices out there. And you used a book on web graphics. What was the name of that? Uh, Do you remember? <laughs> He's looking for it. <laughs> JavaScript graphics. There you go. It's another yep. O'Reilly book. It's got a looks like a bison on the cup. What is that? <laughs> I don't know. It's got a big beard. Yeah. Uh, and a curved horn. It's some yeah. sort of African uh, wildebeest. Uh, question two, Peter Wilson. Atherton, California. Steve, you missed a trick. Um, speaking of meat. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. I uh, love the show, Leo's Others, mostly due to how meaty they are compared with what else is out there. Got it. Speaking of meat, I was looking at your magnetic recording animation page, and notice you're not using the cool new animate frame feature, which was specifically created to facilitate animation. Instead, you're using the old general purpose set interval timer to drive your animation. That's that's because Steve's old school. I've been listening to this podcast for many years. I have the feeling you would have done what was best, even if it might have been more difficult. Uh, is there a reason you didn't use Animate Frame? Thanks, Pete. Okay, well, I'll answer this question, and that's, then that's everybody's it. on their own. Okay. Um, so, yes, uh, Animate Frame is clever, and I tip my hat to the designers of of HTML5 and the canvas and this feature what animate frame does is it tells your code what time it is and uses that together with your browser to set the optimal frame rate the idea is that you might have something really complicated that you're drawing on a slow machine or a slow tablet or or something else that just where there's a a huge overhead and the this set interval essentially you know we all know that animation is the illusion of motion thanks to showing a series a, a rapid series of still frames so you know even movies are that uh, you know movies are just are a succession of of still frames shown one after the other and our on our brain fills in the gaps and we see something that's that's continuously moving so this so this set interval is a <coughs> excuse me is a i use it because i'm saying um that i want my code to be called to draw the next frame every x milliseconds every you know uh every uh like like 30 times a second so every 30 over 1000 milliseconds or 1000 over 30 milliseconds rather and so so what that does is is it it allows me to generate that smooth looking animation because essentially i'm drawing those frames at 30 times a second which is fast enough so that we see it, we, we perceive it as smooth motion 
even though it's actually not. But it might be that that there's a very complex drawing which which can't be done at that rate. So the idea is, and and we've probably uh, I would imagine users have seen, for example, maybe in the old gaming days where if you had like a, a, a slower computer or even a faster computer. I know there was a problem as PCs began to get faster, Leo. Remember it? Like there were like there was a problem where you would have to slow the clock down on the processor because otherwise the video game was people, running too fast. Because people used loops <laughs> to, for timing. It, yes. It was because they weren't tying the timing to the clock. They were just saying, well, wait, uh, you know, count to 30 and then do another frame. Count to 30 to another frame. Now, that might have worked on the original computer. But then as computers get faster, they count to 30 faster. And it doesn't exactly. work so well. So that was just exactly. bad programming, if you ask me. But well, it was hardware so, dependent. So the reason I used this set interval was that I wanted to get a feeling for how this looked at 30 frames per second. Mm. Because remember that where my real goal was not to show an animation on the web browser page. I was just I did this whole thing in order to capture those frames which I will then import into a video presentation. So my my real target was not the web browser and the ability, I mean, it's, it's cool that it, it works as well as it does on all browsers and iPhones and iPads and things. I mean, and it's surprising. I'm very impressed with how efficient this whole thing is because it uses like 2% or 3% of the system on, on, my, on my machine. So it's very efficient. But, but anyway, so what Animate Frame does is different. It says... We're going to work with the browser to show frames at a rate that we think fits your system, whatever that is. And we're going to tell your code what time it is. That is, that is when the frame is being shown. So, for example, imagine you had a, a ball moving across the screen. Um, in the old days, we were just, as, as we were just talking about it, with like a, a, a system based on delay loops, if you had a faster computer, then the ball would move too quickly. But if instead the, the, the programmer asked what time it was, that is like with sufficient resolution, then they would know how much time had passed since the last frame they drew and they could compute the position of the ball for this frame. So the idea is instead of moving the ball a fixed amount per frame, you get the time, like the time of day, with a lot of resolution, when the frame is being shown, and so you compute where the ball should be at that time, literally using, you know, simple physics to say at this time if the ball is moving at this speed it should be here and what that does is it it, it makes the the experience uniform across computers of any speed you could have a really slow web browser and although the ball might be jumpy because it wasn't being drawn often it would at least be moving 
at the, at the speed that you intended it to be moving. So anyway, so because my target was, was generating frames for a video rather than outputting them through the browser, um, what I wanted was to see what 30 frames per second would look like. And ultimately, I'll be, I'll be capturing those frames and then, in, and then merging them into a video presentation. Cool. <laughs> cool. Question three, Andrew Constantine. He's asking about something that we uh, talked about a couple of weeks ago and that I immediately turned on. It's not on by default. The new password iterations feature. Hello, Mr. Gibson. This may have been answered in an earlier episode of Security Now. If so, feel free to point me in the direction uh, of that show. My question is regarding the new password in iterations or PBKDF2 option. I've read the online help articles on it several times, but the way LastPass explains it's a little over my head. You're, you're really good at explaining these complicated things in layman's terms. That's why we call him the explainer-in-chief. So what the hell does Password Iterations PBKDF2 actually do? Love the show. Applaud your passion for the security stuff, even though it is, for the most part, over my head. Cheers, Andrew. We've had a couple of people who've asked the question. I won't spend much time on it because we have covered it before. This PBKDF2 stands for Password-Based Key Derivation Function. What it, what it really means is that there is a way to slow hackers down. Um, what, what hashing, we've often talked about password hashing, Hashes were designed to be fast, but if a, if a hacker is trying to brute force by guessing all possible combinations, then we don't want that job to be fast. Yet, logging in, like using the password interactively, can, if it took a second or two for the system to say, ah, okay, that was the right password. Well, we wouldn't we wouldn't feel that. We wouldn't mind that. But, but if a it bad took, guy if, might. Yes, if it took a second to test every attempted password, right. then that would dramatically increase our security. So the smart guys at LastPass recognized that that as is the case for for all offline password guessing systems and for example WPA uh, that that protects our passwords in Wi-Fi has the same sort of situation where you could capture some traffic in the air and then do an offline brute force attack trying to guess the password that was used and for that reason the smart people who designed the WPA protocol have the same thing they've got a 4096 iteration PBKDF2 option. And so the LastPass guy said, hey, they realized they could add that too just to further strengthen an already well-designed and strong solution. So it appeared in an upgrade, but they don't turn it on. They recommend, I think, what, 512 500. iterations? Yeah. 500. Yeah. Um, and so, but you could you use more if you wanted to. You, you could. And the only, the only consequence of using more would be a little bit, maybe a, a delay you could feel on 
a slower platform. You know, so it's interesting. You, this ties into your last question in an interesting way because ah. these calculations are done client-side. Yes. So if you had a faster computer, you might want to turn those iterations up to slow it down. Correct. It's kind of like a loop. That's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you do have to go into your uh, LastPass settings to modify that. It's, they won't do it for you. Right. Um, but uh, I Although did. they are they are now recommending it. So. Yes, 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 it's recommended. Actually, so it's it a says, good thing. You, you know, it's you, you turn it on and it increases your security and it's painless. Uh, I've done it. You've done it. Yeah, and, I didn't even uh, notice. Yeah. Speaking of which, I, I finally gave in and I, I left the two-step authentication. Notice I say two-step, not two-factor, because that's what Google <laughs> calls it. The, on uh, Google On, I turned it back on. It's kind of a pain because you have to do those one-time passwords on the application, the application-specific passwords. But once you've done that, one thing they did that made it better, they don't expire it every 30 days now. Oh, good. So that's, that eliminates, because if, you know, if you expire it every 30 days, that means every day I have to change something. You know? Right. Something's complaining. Question four. So do turn that on. I'm not recommending it against it. Question four. James Parsons in Virginia. His uh, Twitter handle is at Policy Economy, which is interesting. I wonder if he works for the government. Tweeted to SGGRC. Is it possible to implement Pi securely using JavaScript? Well, Pi is pre-internet encryption. That's an acronym we coined here on the podcast to to stand for this concept of encrypting data before it goes out over the internet. And it's absolutely possible to implement pre-internet encryption for some, for some applications in JavaScript. And the famous one is LastPass that we were just talking about. It, it knows what your passwords are in the browser in your system. And it never sends them unencrypted into the cloud over the Internet to LastPass. LastPass keeps only an, a pre-encrypted blob, which if you then connect up on your Android device or your iPad or a different machine, LastPass will send the blob down to that machine where... Again, using JavaScript, it will decrypt the blob there and make them available to your to that local browser. So that's a perfect LastPass is a perfect example of pre-internet encryption in JavaScript. Now, the problem is that JavaScript is deliberately constrained because it's running in a browser, and a browser, as we all know, is an untrusted client. I mean, it, we would like to trust it. Unfortunately, it's going out and reaching over onto foreign websites all the time and is a constant source of security problems. So for that reason, we did not want a language in every browser that gave it access to our computers. So JavaScript is useful, for example, in that animation page that I did uh, for LastPass, encrypting things before the browser sends it. But it, it would not, for example, be able to encrypt files on your system and then send them to the cloud because we don't want JavaScript to have access outside the browser to general system things. That's, it's just, mm -hmm. That would just mm -hmm. be asking for trouble. Right. Sam 
Feinberg, Palo Alto, California, suggests – he's talking about our last episode. We talked about uh, at Wired.com writer uh, Matt Honan, senior writer Matt Honan, who was hacked uh, last week. He says, Matt might have already been doomed. I was thinking about last week's episode. My conclusion is that Matt's digital life was doomed. He may have been lucky to be hacked since there is, in fact, a way to get his data back. And now he better understands what was always at risk. What if his hard drive had died beyond Benwright's ability to repair or someone stole his MacBook or if he had dropped it without a backup? Those pictures were already toast. You know, parenthetically, uh, that's what Alex Lindsay says is one copy of anything is no copies at all. Another thing that troubles me is that his drive was recoverable. If I remotely wipe a drive, I want it gone, period. I don't want it to be possible to recover a data with a four-digit pin. I'll explain what happens. So I, I want it securely wiped or encrypted with unbreakable encryption. Any device I take outside of the confines of my house I consider vulnerable, especially a laptop I run through airport security or leave in a hotel room. That's why I encrypt my laptop drive and not with an easily brute-forced pin. However, the flip side of that is that it means I would rather lose my data than expose it, period. It seems unfathomable that anyone would only keep a single copy of precious data, and even worse, to have the only copy on a laptop or mobile device. As I said, Matt's data was doomed from the moment he didn't back it up. He should consider himself lucky that something worse didn't happen. Sincerely, Sam. I guess that's true. Well, okay, I have a couple things, and I know you have a couple things. Yeah, you wanna, I'll, I'll, you I'll explain what the, uh, the hard drive does. One of the, one of the things that I have noticed is that over time, we've become increasingly dependent on our gadgets. Um, and, and that our appreciation of, of the what if something went wrong somehow for some reason a quirk of human psychology or maybe there's a sense of well it was fine yesterday so it'll be fine today and, and probably fine tomorrow um the, my favorite examples back when we used to talk about online banking and you know there would be a the family would have their communal family pc now everybody's got their own but one but at one point they were still expensive and so everyone was sharing them and there was no security. I mean, there's no notion of security. The kids would bring their friends over after school and they'd, you know, download strange software on it or get stuff off the Internet or they were using, you know, file sharing stuff that was a big source of problems. And then mom and dad decide that they want to – it's like their bank is saying, hey, you know, you could do your banking online. And so into this disaster of security, they – they begin to add new functions and features that really do need security. But because it sort of happens a little bit at a time, just sort of drip, 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 at no point is there like anything that says to them, wow, you need to really start taking this seriously because have you noticed – you, you know, you, you've now got your accounting, you know, you're, you're now Quicken and QuickBooks is on your system and your banking is on and and your, you know, your husband or your family's, uh, you know, uh, investment portfolio is there, blah, 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 blah. So there, one of the things that happens, I think, is that we sort of, we just sort of, this creeps up on us. You can imagine, for example, that Matt 
may have transferred the first photos of his newborn from his camera to this laptop. And and at that point, he didn't have a huge investment in the con in that particular content of his laptop. But it slowly grew over time, and it never occurred to him to say, "Okay, what if this all disappeared tomorrow? I mean, what 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 if it was just gone?" And you know, we've we've talked around this in various ways over the years, like what would happen. Again, you know, no one wants to think of what if I didn't wake up in the morning, but how you know how would my family deal with all of the passwords that I have in my head that they don't know that are vital, you know? So th- this notion of of what if planning is important, but I think it, it's very easy for us not to appreciate how important it is because. Of, of sort of over the time that we can look back and remember, we've become far more dependent upon these things. The security of them has become far more important as more and more of our life has become digital. As Matt put it, Mano, his digital life, which, which is, he, he suddenly realized how important that was because he had digital photographs that you know used to be printed out on film and on on paper now they're on a hard disk and you know as sam says you could turn the computer on and it says we don't have a hard disk here anymore so i i think i, I like this because i mean i understood what 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 sam meant and i know that matt is probably now taking measures yeah. to make sure that that he's backed up. Oh, yes, I talked to Matt. He's definitely <laughs> cue the carbonite ad. He's definitely uh, doing that. And we, yeah. I don't know. I have not talked to him since he uh, got hooked up with the uh, drive savers. I asked him, the drive savers people to help him out. Um, so I don't know. So I'm a little curious. And Apple, understandably, is not very, is a little cryptic about what happens in the remote wipe. One would presume that what happens is it erases data, then overwrites it, and then erases it and overwrites it. And that's what I assumed happened. And in fact, when I talked to Matt, he said, Apple said the overwrite portion had not completed, so they believed that the data would be recovered, recoverable. Now, there is a four-digit passcode you have to enter, but they were able to brute force that. That's not so difficult. And get in and unlock it for him yeah, and then he something. has to bring it in now, now it gets more complicated so the mac observer uh, had the same questions and they did uh this week they did something kind of interesting a couple of days ago they wiped a drive and they wanted to see can it be recovered and in fact they were able to recover the data it took a long time but they were able to use a uh, an application that is designed to recover erased data called Data Rescue 3, and they were able to recover it. Now, they point out that if it's on a solid-state drive, which Matt, it was a MacBook Air, Matt was, that the trim feature built into the operating system uh, might, in fact, make data recovery impossible, because, or at least uh, sp- spotty, because trim overwrites data as part of the trim process. Um, and, and this is the probably the takeaway, if File Vault had been turned on, which is the whole disk encryption built into OS X, then it would have been unrecoverable. The wipe would have been sufficient. 
uh, because, of course, with the wipe, you lose the, uh, the, key, the file vault encryption key. Okay, this is all sounding very sketchy, Leo. I mean, well, it, it what, sounds like they just did a delete. Like yeah. they deleted files, and then you can undelete them. It does sound like that. Although yeah. I think they do more than a delete. I think they delete the partition tables and the uh, and the out, whatever the equivalent in HFS is of a file allocation table because they had to use the deep, the deep scan, which is a sector by sector recovery process. <laughs> well, this just sounds like, but the data was recovered. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I'm um, glad for that. But this does, you know, I would say to our listeners, we 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 know about TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt is real encryption. Right. TrueCrypt is anybody who's concerned, as, as Sam indicated, uh, he was that his that anybody else would have access to his data. You know, TrueCrypt is a beautiful piece of work that runs under Windows and on the Mac platform. It, you know, it has the overhead of you need to enter a password in order to to boot your system but boy you know it solves the problem in the right way this is, sounds really hokey well, yeah, I, mean, I don't know what apple is well doing. but think about it uh maybe this was i, I bet it's a conscious decision because what you're doing is you're wiping it and figuring the bad guy is gonna if he can even if he can get through the four digit pass key but, but Leo, it's gonna but, say but, well the hard drive's wiped and just sell it okay but the notion of a four digit pin is at complete odds. I agree with with any kind of like wiping. What what does that word mean? No, there's we're not getting the whole story. This is all funky sounding. You know, well, read this. Like, this is a, well, this... we're wiping it, but we are the four digit pin. What? So you can unwipe it? Yeah. You know what? That's okay. Well, then it wasn't wiped. <laughs> it wasn't wiped. It was deleted, but not wiped. Well, no. I, I, but what? How, okay. So what's the four digit pin do? No, there's something. You know, I don't know. Well, no. the four-digit pin keeps people from using the computer, so it's two. It's, there's two points. To oh, it. okay. So the I bad guy you. can't even use the computer, and then oh, should he get okay. in, he'll but find out. And then the the pin does not unwipe the drive. Oh no 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 no! You have to use the pin locks the computer, so exactly. it's no longer useful to them. There's an there are two uh, options uh, if you've lost it. your Mac on on this. Got One it. is to put a pin on it. One is to put a pin and wipe the drive. Got it. Got it. So that's fine. Okay. Yes. And, and no, I, I think the message apparently is if you're really concerned that you're going to, that some bad guy will get your drive and be smart enough to do a, you know, data rescue on it, then you should use full whole disk encryption, which would yep. provide an additional layer of protection. Yep. Um, Good. But Apple, okay. of course, is not going to tell anybody what they're doing because they don't want anybody to know. Yeah. Quite understandably. I mean, you know. <laughs> Security through obscurity. Will Agnew, <laughs> yes. Connecticut, takes issue with our casual attitude regarding the Matt Honan hacking. First, I'm going to read it in a Connecticut accent. Let me say, I have immense respect for what you do. I am a fan of you and your work. However, I am disturbed by your casual attitude toward the legality of the actions these young people seem to ignore. Not be a lawyer. Not being a lawyer. I'm not going to continue this way. Obviously, not being and a lawyer. I, I may. I think this would discourage Will from writing to us again. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're just we're having a little fun with you, sir. Not being a lawyer, I may be wrong, but what was described in this hack seems to be a clear violation of Title 18 of the U.S. Code, with penalties of 20 years in prison and millions of dollars in fines. I heard no mention of the seriousness of these hackers' actions under the law, and I seem to detect an acceptance of this sort of activity, especially regarding the culture mentioned near the end of your show. 
Being an IT security person myself, it is clear to me that the first shots of the cyber war have been fired. <laughs> Please. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe I'll go back to that accent. And the U.S. <laughs> needs young people who have this sort of interest to become the next generation of cyber warriors rather than waste those skills and interest in technology trying to hack and gain access to a cool Twitter account handle. Perhaps some constructive feedback by... I did, but, well, all right. I'll, I'll finish the letter, then I'll respond. Perhaps some constructive feedback by people these kids respect could help with this. I think we mentioned this. I understand the intent of your podcast was to illustrate an example of all the types of issues you regularly discuss being applied. I'm just disappointed that the tone of the program never really touched upon the severe penalties this activity can bring to people who do this type of activity. As a consequence, I worry that the Wired activity in, uh, article in your podcast may actually be encouraging these people to continue doing these activities, in a sense, giving credibility to them. What do you think? Can I just say, first of all, on the podcast, I said it was a federal offense, a felony uh, I did attempt to get Kevin Mitnick, who has served time in jail, about three years. Nobody gets 20 years, certainly not for a hack like this, but who did serve three years for a much more severe hack uh, to talk to them. And he quite wisely said, you know, maybe it'd be better not to talk to people actively engaged in criminal activities, <laughs> considering my history. So he declined. But I did say to these guys uh, behind the scenes, uh, you're going to, this is a felony. Nobody needs to press charges if the feds do not take well to this. And I think I even mentioned on the podcast in this post 9-11 war or world, uh, these things are, it's dumb to do this. Nobody is laughing about this. Yeah. Yes. I don't think yeah, we mocked I, it. I don't think we encouraged it. It is not our job to enforce the laws of the United States. There are people duly, uh, uh, nominated to do that, but I think we were very clear about that. Yeah, I, it, um, I, 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 I chose this. I obviously I didn't have to, but because I thought it was it was worth mentioning that that there was no benefit that these that these young kids were deriving from this. Yet they really were taking a substantial risk. I mean, as as, as you said, Leo, in this post nine eleven world. Um, and as we really seem to have this notion of cyber warfare and and like cyber is going to be the next battlefield, mind boggling as that is still to me, um, you know, there's a serious consequence to to this sort of hacking. Yes, so but nobody. So I nobody denies you know, and, that. And it's, it's one thing for the Russian mafia to be doing this and entirely something else for, you know, a bored 19-year-old kid to be sort of wantonly committing felonies. And so so I don't want to see anything anyone locked up in jail for for just, you know, screwing around. And and so I mean I I guess I I see a point to what Will was saying, which is my sense is these kids probably as as part of their gang or their group or their culture don't appreciate that you know the, you know i mean the fact that he was able to ask matt to agree not to press charges demonstrates a lack of appreciation yes. for the severity the le the legal consequences of of what he was doing and wow i mean you know he was saying that someone else made the calls to amazon and was impersonating people and i mean but this that it was it was a lot to do 
But I'm pretty so, sure I read this on Security Now, uh, our conversation, which he said, oh, Pat, Matt's not pressing charges. And I said that he doesn't have to. It's a felony. I said, I'm no lawyer, but I think you can. It's a felony. Wire fraud. He said, exploiting methods for the better cause seems unlikely you'd get in trouble. I said, well, <laughs> the feds don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, yes. I said, let's, you want me to get Kevin Mitnick to tell you what's going on here? But the point is, look, we talk about also bank hacks on this show frequently. It is We are not nannies. It is not our job to say parenthetically, oh, and by the way, it is illegal to hack a bank and you could go to jail, so don't. <laughs> That's not our job. I'm sorry. Uh, I'll leave yep. that to you, Mr. Agnew. You can go around to the teenagers in your neighborhood and remind them that the U.S. Yep. needs their hacking skills. But it's not my job. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, question seven, Dan in South Carolina. He's wondering about achieving security in the face of extreme access limitations. Steve, I'm looking for a better business practice for personal account management. I've wanted to go to a LastPass-like solution for a very long time. I don't, I don't think it'll work for me. I'm in the military, and I work long hours on systems with tight IT controls. I am often not allowed to have my iPhone with me when I work. I also travel regularly and find myself on completely new systems. These are all well-secured systems, but often by different IT departments inside the DOD with different IT policies. This guy's a heavy-duty hitter here. Yeah. The nature of my work necessitates my being able to conduct personal business from my work computers during lunch or off-duty hours. I'm surprised he can. Mm. Six months away from home is a long time not to check your bank account. Ah, now I understand why. Yeah. Currently, my password management system is a password-protected Excel spreadsheet. Mm. Mixed case yeah. numbers and special characters <laughs> that I email to myself. Oh, God. This way, if I find myself sitting down on a new computer in a new place, I can get oriented and get things done. You bet. Uh, anyway, these are uh, not random computers in a hotel lobby. I worry my Excel spreadsheet method may not be sufficient to protect me. Any advice regards Dan? So I thought about this a bit and I kept coming back to, you know, the notion of a, of a, of a pad of paper, essentially. I mean, yeah, one time passes or something. Yeah. Well, actually the, the off the grid system that I designed exactly. is exactly for this kind of purpose. Now I need to also mention that I, I never uh, put the links up publicly after I uh, described it and discussed it. A couple people noted that I hadn't handled the case of repeating characters in the domain name during the initial sort of warm-up phase. And I got pulled off of that to work on something else before I got the, the, the pages finally all buffed and, and made public. But I, I haven't forgotten it, and I am gonna, it's on my short list of things I, I want to get back to and, and get finished but that kind of system, something, something that is, I mean, if nothing else, just maybe paper in your wallet or, you know, something. I mean, the one, frankly, the, the, the off the grid system is perfect for this because it's low tech. It is, it is, I'm a little worried and I, I could hear in your, in your tone of voice, Leo, that the, not, the notion of a password protected Excel spreadsheet seems a Seems an oxymoron. <laughs> well, and, and in the past, like in the past, uh, it, it is true that uh, Office uh, password protection has been easily hacked. Uh, but right. they did go to a much more secure system. I think they're using a, a strong 
encryption technology now, but I still wouldn't rely on it. And, you know, you really are if you're emailing it. You're, you're basically yeah. making it public. If you have, there's a, a cool little utility we've talked about a couple of times called AxCrypt, A-X-C-R-Y-P-T. AxCrypt is just a very simple AES-256 um, standalone, very solid little encryption utility, which is freely available on the Internet. Um, and I would trust it much more than I would trust Microsoft's password on their office documents. You're right, Leo, that there's all kinds of, you know, remove the password from your Expel spreadsheet, yeah. you know, yeah. turnkey third-party utilities floating around. Maybe they no longer work. It's not something I've looked at, but, you know, running it through my own encryption, I would feel... And then you don't have to really use a spreadsheet. You just use a, you right. know, any file Flat that's file. convenient. Yeah. Yes. You know, he, uh, and he, it, he could probably use... Uh, I'm sure LastPass would work on a USB key. I don't know if he's allowed to bring in... And probably isn't in a secure that's what environment. what I was wondering, too. But, yes. But, but there... And certainly KeePass, which is um, an open source password safe that's quite good does work on usb keys you can bring the password database around with you you could even email it because it's fully encrypted right um but i bet you given what he's just described he's not allowed to bring usb keys in either yeah it's why it's why a paper based system yeah. looked like it was Put like your the wallet. perfect solution for him yeah do you so you don't have those grids online anymore no, I actually, it's all online, uh, and I think Google knows where it is, but I have never linked it. I haven't taken menus. them officially public yet. Yes. Uh, off, the, off the grid. So system. Google GRC off the grid. Let me just see. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Number one hit. Uh, but are you saying it's imperfect? I mean... Uh, no, it, it works. Some some people noted that I had there was a, a, a case that I hadn't handled yet, and uh. so I just haven't gotten around to doc, updating the documentation, and and I just want to read it all again. I feel like I just hadn't quite finished it, and so I I didn't I didn't take it public yet. Yeah, but he could currently print this grid out. Absolutely, create Absolutely. an algorithm for generating a password that only he knows. Yep, uh, and then he'd have it. And uh, yep. and this these are all unique. Each time you load this page, you get a new, unique grid. Yep. Right? And then there's also the the grid generator page a little bit further in. Ah, okay. So all the details are here. That's probably the best thing. And that you know, I think they can't stop him from bringing his wallet in. No, and, or <laughs> just a sheet of paper. Or a sheet of paper. Philip Bocchia or Bocchia. I bet you it's a uh, Bocchia in New Hyde Park, New York. Asks about the Internet Who Is system. Steve, in episode 364, you and Leo talked about the problem of no privacy with Who Is lookups. Isn't that one of isn't one of the reasons this information is publicly available is to create or thwart the creation of rogue websites? If you make the Who Is information private, wouldn't that essentially be protecting those bad guys who set up illegal and phishing sites? So, Who Is? We should explain. Is, Where are you going? Yeah. The 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 uh, back in the back in the beginning, the dawn of the internet, um, there was an interest in creating a sort of a translation between the the virtual world and the physical world, and there was actually one physical server that DARPA was running, called that was the Who Is server, and anybody could send it a query. You could say, you know, who owns this block of IPs? 
who owns this domain name? I mean, it was just, it was like a big lookup database that was freely accessible to anyone. And it's, it's never gone away. You used to even be able to give it wild cards. Like you could say, you know, tell me all the Gibsons you have. <laughs> it would just dump them out. Clearly, those days are long since past. Today, what we have is a still this notion of, of the who is system being used to, to map domain names to real-world entities. The problem is that it's up to the registrars to fill out this information. And the registrars are not in the, real, not in the business, especially if you're not asking for SSL certificates. They're not really in the business of verifying people's identities or performing any you know, great amount of, of, of follow-up to make sure that what you've told them is valid. They, they're happy to take your money and 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 essentially give you control of a domain name that they stick into the the internet's DNS system and they feel that, that their job is done i am i'm unimpressed by by several things first of all it is unfortunately it's been used as a source of spam that is it you know spammers have figured out that there are email addresses of what used to at one point have been, you know, important people who were administrative leads for their domains. And so it was one way that, you know, spam found its way to people is that they would they would put real email addresses in their who is records. You you're by law, technically, you're supposed to have real contact information there. I mean, that's that's what it's for. So what annoys me most, frankly, is that someone like Network Solutions charges money per year, like nine or ten dollars per year per domain name to to obscure your who your who is lookups. Now to answer Philip's question, Network Solutions knows who's behind or theoretically behind the who is information that they manage. So certainly, even if it was obscured or encrypted or protected, they could be served with, um, you know, some government documents compelling them to to tell them who, you know, what information they have about somebody who owns a domain, and I'm sure they would turn it over. Um, so it's, uh, unfortunately, it's just become useless. Pretty much, you know, it's 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 full of junk. It's not accurate. It's it's only contains whatever information someone chose to to give the registrar. What do you think, Leo? I think Steve Gibson is not impressed <laughs> by who is. Um, and by the way, the the current who is privacy system. Um, if if it were a bad guy, they just go to the server and they say, well, who is it? I mean, yeah. it's not hidden from the hosting company. It's just from the casual who is searcher. Right. So I don't think that that's a problem. And right. I, I think privacy is important because otherwise my, my personal address is posted in there. Yeah. Colin in Cleveland says, what about best practices for security questions, which are insecure to begin with? Yeah. 
Listener for about a year here, love the show. Last week's show following the details of Matt Honan's hacking has brought a question back to mind. What's your approach for handling security questions? I've done what I can to avoid questions that can be answered by a Google search, but I've never been able to find a reliable method for having secure answers that are easy to remember. I'm already using LastPass for my passwords, so anything I can do to improve these questions will significantly boost my online security. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I wish we could just turn these off. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? So, so um, the good news is Colin is a LastPass user. LastPass has a secure notes option. Yep. And security questions are not something that you generally need to have on the tip of your fingers or that you're being you're being bugged about all the time. You know, it's sort of a, a fallback password recovery option. On the other hand, one would hope if you're using LastPass, you've got enough technology at your beck and call that you're not needing to use password recovery. But my point is that you could just generate uh, things that look like passwords and, and mean like nonsense strings to answer security questions and then but you could never remember those so LastPass has this cool little secure notepad where you're able to create notes and name them so you would name the notes after the domains that you have answered these questions for and store your answers there so that LastPass will keep them secure they're encrypted. You don't need to remember them. And if you ever need them again, you can ask LastPass what it was that, you know, you used for, you know, your first girlfriend's, you know, name or the, your, your favorite teacher from high school or whatever. I ran across somebody, I think it was the email I saw or maybe somebody tweeted. I think it's too long to have been a tweet. Someone was saying, though, that um, they were in a online conversation with some people that they connected with who were sort of chatting back and forth. And after a while, one of them sort of casually said, so, you know, out of curiosity, if you had to, uh, who would you say was your first childhood friend? <laughs> just asking. Just, you know, we're just... Um, My we're first childhood friend, friend was Sally. Who was yours? Uh huh. Wow, and, that's. And not kidding. And so, and, and and this person, whoever it was, it must have been a follow up that I saw for, from our from our our Matt episode last week. Um, and he and he said, sure enough, I went back to the system that we were using, and that was the security question which this particular service had. Mm -hmm. And so they were just, they were trying to socially asking, engineer him. Just yeah, just kind of curious. Who would you know? Oh, what would you, you remember your first pet's no. name? What, you know, that's what, six what, degrees of freedom. Maybe we happen to know the same. Who was your favorite uh, school teacher? Just, do, <laughs> who just off the top of your, you know, the truth is I just realized I said they should turn them off. It's easy. If you don't want them, don't use them. Uh, just, you don't have to just put nonsense in there and don't use it. But yeah, understand blah, blah. that if you ever have to, you then now the onus is on you not to lose your password. Correct. Uh, I guess there are some places like your bank and stuff where you uh, actually, when I call my credit card, they will ask, "What? What's the name of your first teacher?" It's so uh, that's the problem is that they sh no one should rely on these. That's the real problem. Yeah. the The one thing that I've seen a couple times are sites that allow you to provide 
the thing, the security question yeah, write your own. and the matching answer. Yeah. So at least there, they're not all the same. Apple, I guess, has a set of really dumb things yeah. that are that are the, like the okay, concept well. is flawed. The whole point of a security question is. What's something you can easily remember and easily retrieve from your mind if you forget your well, password, you nitwit? Yeah, and we've talked about the 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 nature of multi-factor authentication is multiple factors. <laughs> One of the things that Matt's story showed us last week was that Apple said, "Oh, you don't remember your security questions." Okay, no well, in that case, no problem. Well, you're like, even wait, stupider either, than we thought, but that's okay. Either. Yes, either honor them or don't. Uh, yeah, or don't use them. And and, and yeah. as you said last week, then let the onus be on the user to. Re and and if we can't help you, you forgot your password. Yes. Sorry, maybe you better set yes. up a new account because we don't know. And really, that's the that's another problem. I don't know if you got emails about this. Is but should customer service reps have access to that kind of information? Yeah, because that's a hole. That's a flaw. And I think the fact is that stuff's not going away. I don't know what we could do about it. I mean, they're go there's going to happen. Uh, I guess our last question. <laughs> Security Now listener Paul in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, shares his observation about Matt Honan's very bad weekend as it relates to compromised user databases. Steve, as you yep. know, recently several user information databases at Sony, Yahoo, LinkedIn, and others were compromised with so little information required to reset someone's password at some companies. Wouldn't a compromised database be easy to use to access someone's account or everyone's account, even if their password is hashed? A lot of the other information, like email addresses, billing addresses, credit card numbers, could not be hashed. It's needed by the company, and that information possibly and most probably is not encrypted or at least could be decrypted. If someone were to reset their password after learning of a compromised database, all the information is still there. And that was, that really was, the I think, the lesson of this hack, to simply call and get a password reset. A company's password reset policy could be the weakest link in the chain. What do you think? Paul from Ottawa. I think that was really the point we were making is that you can have last passes, strong passwords. And in a case like this, if the company doesn't have good security policies, you're screwed. Yes. And... Um, I, I've been thinking about it in the week since, and um, I've I've in the process of putting together sort of a of a, a commentary that I will share with our listeners next week. Excellent. Well, there you go. And I and I agree with Paul. I, it is it is clearly the case that the password reset policy is the weakest link. We we it is we're to the point where we need to change something and i have a suggestion and we will share that next week what a tease you are <laughs> steve, steve gibson the explainer in chief you'll find him at grc.com the gibson research corporation that's where he hangs his hat and uh, spin right the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility you can also find lots of freebies there in fact even though off the grid's not on the menu it's off the grid you can google it and it's there too and uh, so a lot of other very useful stuff. He tweets on uh, on the Twitter at at SGGRC. Uh, there's also SGPAD and SGVLC, but don't tell Dr. Mom what that means because she's sitting right over here and, <laughs> and giving me the stink eye right now. But it's okay because I had some chocolate and she feels better. Isn't that interesting? I had Wait, chocolate, you but have, you feel you better. You had chocolate and she feels better. Yeah, okay. isn't that interesting? 
<laughs> Steve, it's always fun. I really appreciate it. We will talk next week about security, privacy, science fiction, coffee, and anything else that's on your mind. Fantastic. I look forward to it. Take care, Steve. We do this show Thanks. every uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC on twit.tv. Do watch live. We'd love it if you do. I, I interact with the chat room and so forth. And, and, of course, after the fact, we make on-demand versions available. Steve's got a great 16-kilobit audio file for the bandwidth impaired. Also, the smallest version of this show, which is a text transcription. That's at grc.com. We have the audio and video, the fat stuff at uh, twit.tv or wherever, wherever finer podcasts are offered for download. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.